What was the first moment when you were exposed to disco and you said to yourself, I want to be a part of that? That was um, 1973. Probably the um, early fall of 73, I went into the, my first discotheque called Zelda's on Commonwealth Avenue in Boston. And, um, you know, we had heard about this place where the chicks were all hot and everybody was sexy and everybody got dressed up and they, they played a lot of R&B music and said, well, let's go check it out. And I walked into the room and the first thing I saw first was the lights from the mirrored ball. Never seen a mirrored ball like that before with those kind of lights on it. And then the song that was playing was Soma Cosa by Mano Dabango. That was the first time I heard it. And um, for a guy who liked that kind of music, I love soul, I love R&B, to hear something like that for the first time on a sound system like that with the lights, it was like, whoa, this is it for me. That, that, that was the moment. Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. We are a member of the Goat Rodeo Network. This show is the first episode of a two-part series on disco. We'll release the second in a few weeks. Both parts contain a fair amount of mature content, so if you have children in the room, please consider listening with headphones. The first discotheque appeared in France in the early 1940s, while the country was under Nazi occupation. Hitler believed jazz music was a subversive influence and outlawed jazz performances and owning jazz records. Despite the Fuhrer's restrictions, a secret club named La Discotheque opened that played American jazz records procured on the black market for its swing-loving patrons. After World War II ended, the term discotheque, meaning a club where you listen to discs rather than a live band, migrated across the Atlantic and found a new home in America where many opened for business. During the 1960s, rock and roll discotheques catered to a clientele interested in popular dances like the Twist, the Mashed Potato, and the Bristol Stomp. Music journalists shortened the term discotheque to simply disco. But by the end of the 60s, people were all twisted out and these clubs began to close, making room for the discotheque's next evolutionary phase. Around 1970, two Manhattan discos stumbled upon a revolutionary way of playing records continuously throughout the night. One of those discos wasn't really a disco at all, but more like a party held in a private loft and hosted by David Mancuso. David Mancuso, who becomes the person who starts to hold his own private parties that soon become known as the loft, Mancuso likes going to the successors of these rent parties and he eventually has the idea of putting on his own parties when he moves to a downtown loft in what's now referred to as NoHo, north of Houston Street on Broadway. That's Tim Lawrence, author of the book Love Saves the Day, a history of American dance music culture from 1970 to 1979. And what he does is he takes his rent party, this private party idea, as if you're indeed throwing um, a birthday party, and he combines it with several things. He has been an acolyte of Timothy Leary and has been going to his LSD party, so he's interested in bringing LSD into this equation. And he's also started to purchase some audiophile sound equipment. And so he puts on a rent party, but with these differences. And, you know, the final difference is that David Mancuso says, well, what if we do all of these things, but do them with music and dancing? David's very first party went on till 6 a.m.,
Mancuso played records on his turntables throughout the night, but he never referred to himself as a DJ. Instead, he preferred the term musical host. He selected music in a sequence meant to take the dancer on a journey. The set went on continuously until the sun came up and had a perceivable energy arc with a beginning, middle, climax, and a resolution. But Mancuso wasn't the only musical host playing records in this fashion. A DJ at a Manhattan disco called The Sanctuary was developing a similar style. It was at the beginning of 1970 that two guys who own a series of gay bars in the West Village who are known as Seymour and Shelley take over one of these failing discotheques, The Sanctuary, where a DJ called Francis Grasso has been playing. And they become the first venue owners of a public discotheque to welcome in this kind of emerging gay crowd. The Sanctuary's original owners had employed Francis Grasso to spin rock dance discs, and the new owners kept him on. But Grasso found that the new regime at the Sanctuary had a very different idea of a DJ's role. The old owners expected this. His job is effectively supposed to uh, build up a quick frenzy on the floor, make people, you know, hot, and then to put on a record that people wouldn't want to dance to, or would change the pace so they'd build up the frenzy and then put on a slow record. These venues were making their money primarily at the bar, and that was really the cue for people to go to the bar and buy a drink, and that was the role of a DJ. But with the new owners and the gay patrons they brought with them, Grasso's role began to evolve. So Francis says when this new crowd comes in, it makes him change the way he selects records. And when the gay crowd started an ad come in and also a whole group of other dancers came in along with them, you know, along with this new ownership, sort of all sorts of bohemians and artists and just people who wanted a party along with the gay crowd, the dynamic changed. There was so much more energy on the dance floor. He no longer felt that he could kill the floor or manipulate the crowd. In other words, the exchange had to become more democratic and more conversational. It wasn't so much about the DJ acting as a kind of puppeteer. It's at this point that we have this new form of music making. Once the DJ is selecting in relationship to the energy that she or he is perceiving on the dance floor and it becomes a conversation, all of a sudden we have this extraordinary sense of musical possibility. It's a collectively made antiphonal or conversational democratic form of music making and can draw together sonic elements from the widest imaginable range of musical sources. I don't play for myself, I play for the crowd. You let them tell you. That's Joey Carvello, a club DJ who rose to fame in his hometown of Boston. He is also the voice you heard in the introduction. You'll be able to watch and see what style you're playing, That whether it's they're into the straight-up disco or they want to hear the funk. Or you better read the crowd. You give them a sample of everything as the night builds. You find out that that genre of or that, that zone. You find that zone and you hit that zone in the peak and you roll it for the rest of the night. You know, it's all about reading the crowd and giving them what they want. As the conversation between the DJ and the dance floor became more democratic, the mix of people on the dance floor became more inclusive as well. It's music of the community, by the community, for the community. There's an exuberance post-Stonewall in the gay community of gay people coming together to celebrate and to party. And how do you do that? You do that on the dance floor. That's Jim DeRogatis music journalist and co-host of Sound Opinions. It starts in the gay community, deep in the underground. DJs playing largely at gay clubs, African-American and to some extent Hispanic, begin to take these records and do really interesting things with them. 
and it has its roots there as a real underground movement. The people that went into disco, they, they didn't see gay, black, straight, white. We didn't care. You know, we thought we cared because we didn't know, because we grew up like that. White people and black people don't hang out. Straight people and gay people don't hang out. That's the way we grew up, you know? And then we got into the club. We went to the bus, and we went to this gay bus. Yeah, the boys are just fine. Having a great time here with the fellas, you know what I mean? This is great, you know? If they knew you were straight, they would, they're not going to hit on you or bother you. And if they did, hey, thank you. I'm it's very complimentary. They're going to the black clubs. That was the most fun I ever had in my life. Was going to the rhinoceros. Being all the white white people there. Feel that soul and that's that fucking energy and the love and the room for this music and just the camaraderie and the characters. It was just unbelievable. There's something about this culture which is fundamentally tied to the counterculture. The idea, you know, you're pro-gay liberation, civil rights, you know, women's rights and feminism, anti-war, exploration through different forms of living, whether that's be ideas of kind of, you know, hippie outlook on life or consuming LSD. All of these things are saying the same kind of thing. It's about transformation and it's also about democratic participation and it's about openness and it's about cross-cultural coalitions. And all of these things that are going on politically and are getting some kind of articulation on Woodstock in fact, get a much fuller articulation on the dance floor. As this new crowd of dancers helped elevate the act of DJing to an art form, the songs the DJs chose to play, and therefore their record collections, became increasingly important. DJs spent their free time scouring record stores for obscure imports or traveling to hear what DJs in other cities were playing anything to find a fresh song that would light up the dance floor. Decades later, most people have a clear idea of what a so-called disco song sounds like. But that sound, the relentless hi-hat, lush strings, and signature bass line did not exist as the 1970s began. DJs were playing an eclectic mix of other genres to get the dance floor moving. They'd play up-tempo rock artists like the Rolling Stones, Philadelphia Soul, or funk like James Brown. The only requirement for the music was that it made people move. In 1973, a music journalist named Vince Aletti published the first article ever written about disco. In that article, he described the perfect disco song like this. Here is Tim Lawrence quoting Aletti's article. It's characterized as being Afro-Latin in sounds or instrumentation, heavy on the drums with minimal lyrics, sometimes in a foreign language, and a repetitious chorus with the most popular cuts, and again I quote, usually the longest and the most instrumental, performed by black groups who are frequently not American. Disco was all those soul acts that we didn't know. When we listened, Top 40 Radio played the four, they played some Motown, they played some Aretha, but what they didn't play was, they didn't play The Whispers, they didn't play Harold Melvin, The Blue Notes, they didn't play The Tramps, they didn't play The First Choice, they didn't play The Three Degrees or The Intruders. Those records were being played at the disco. The disco sound probably gets codified around about the summer of 1974. So really quite late, much later than people think, when two records, which we can call disco records probably, reach number one back to back. One is um, Rock the Boat by the Hughes Corporation and another is Rock Your Baby by George McRae. They both hit their successive number ones in the summer of 1974. So I like to know Said I'd like to know when you got the notion to rock the 
After the disco sound gelled in the United States, it didn't take long before that new music made its way across the Atlantic and fell into the hands of European composers. Those composers embraced the disco sound and added their own ideas. It evolved musically, and that's I think that the Europeans really gave it that tempo. They brought it up. They put a symphony into it. You know, when Sarone with Love in C minor, what Giorgio did with Donna Summer. The producer Giorgio Moroder met Donna Summer in Germany while she was working as a backup singer. The two began making music together, and pretty soon Donna Summer earned the title Queen of Disco. I think Moroder's a genius. You know, those productions for Donna Summer where he's taking the sort of underground experimental edge of really nascent electronic music, what's happening in Krautrock in Germany with bands like Kraftwerk, and he's merging it with this incredibly soulful African-American, you know, gospel-trained singer who also has some theater in her. You know, Donna Summer starts out in a touring production of Hair, right? You know, so it's, it's theatrical, it's soulful, and it's incredibly inventive musically, and then it's the sound of a woman pleasuring herself with an electronic toy, you know, and it's like, man, we had not heard that in pop music before. As Rock the Boat and Rock Your Baby became number one hits in 1974, disco culture was also evolving alongside the music. I think disco, first of all, was very much a lifestyle. The lifestyle was bigger than the music in the beginning. It was crazy. You know, a guy who ran a printing press during the day could be um, this sexy Romeo dancer on the dance floor at night and be a completely different person. That's what disco was. It was sexy. It made everything sexy. When you went to a disco, when you walked in that door... Your sexy was up. And that's how it was. The disco lifestyle could influence every aspect of life, including fashion. I wasn't as severe. I wasn't a big polyester guy. But yeah, sure, I had the Nick Nick shirts. And yeah, and I had the white suit and a white jumpsuit. I had all that stuff. I wore the gold. I had the white glasses and the hairstyle. Yeah, I did. Sure. But not as severe. I didn't take it to um, three-piece polyester suits. I didn't go, I didn't go that far. It affected a person's nightlife. We'll take a day off, but we never took a night off. You know, maybe Monday was a day of rest, but we were out. Mondays, Tuesdays, maybe, but Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we were out. It impacted which drugs you might consume? I mean, we had to keep on going. We, you know, got to go to three, four clubs a night. You know, I had to, you know, get up there and have fun, and then we had to go to sleep. Those quaaludes. I mean, we had, you know, the sex, drugs, and, you know, it was, it was out of control. It had a lot to do with after hours, too. We partied. There was always a house party afterwards. You know, so we just went. We went for days sometimes. Without sleeping? Oh, sure. Yeah, I've got three, three, four days just going, yeah. And on rare occasions, the disco lifestyle led to some interesting encounters with gypsies. We had uh, gypsies that used to come to yesterday's. Nikki the Gypsy and all of his friends. They were characters, all of them. Had to keep your eye on them, but they were good people. They never messed with our people. And we brought them in, and they become part of the fold. And um, I even got a gypsy name. They call me Jojo Venus. <laughs> How they came up with that, I don't know. 
But one of the girls, and the girls were very sexy and beautiful, that their sisters and their aunts, they all come hang out. And one of them overdosed, one of the very pretty ones, I forget her name, overdosed and having a funeral. And of course, we partied the night before and um, we're going to the funeral. She was in the casket and we were in a couple of cars behind and we see the, the funeral car pull over on the side of the road and see Nikki, the gypsy, and his friends get out, and we get out of the car, and I said, what's the matter? He goes, we got no blow. I said, so what are you doing here? He goes, I said, you're kidding me. And he like nods his head toward the, the casket car, turns his head to it, I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, man, he said, she would want us to do that. Evidently, they had put a bunch of cocaine and joints and pills in the casket with her to take to the afterlife, and um, like I said, they ran out and they needed some, so they pulled out, they pulled the casket out of the back, they opened it up, and I remember watching Nicky put his arm in, like looking the other way, going, I'm sorry, baby, I'm sorry, fishing around, and he comes out with a bag of blow, got it! <laughs> Closed the casket, put it back in, got in the car, we all got high. <laughs> that was disco. That's fucking disco, man. Disco didn't just change the way people danced and partied, it also changed the music business. For an industry that spent the previous two decades believing that the only way to sell records was to get them played on the radio, most insiders were not prepared for the new paradigm disco ushered in. With the exception of Atlantic Records, the major labels ignored disco, favoring instead the old radio-centric business model that was effective at promoting rock records. The local record reps back then, they didn't give a shit about us. It was all these rock and roll guys that were doing promotion, about 40 guys doing promotion, and they looked at disco as gay because they just didn't fit into the lifestyle. And they thought it was a gay thing. So they kind of stayed away from it. The major labels left a major void and created an opportunity for anyone skilled enough to fill it. A few record promoters recognized this opportunity, including a man named Ray Caviano. After dropping out of high school, Caviano took on a string of jobs promoting bands, promoting magazines like Rolling Stone, and eventually promoting records. Sometime around 1973, Caviano met Billy Smith, one of Disco's pioneering record promoters, and soon became his protege. There was a young man, Billy Smith, who i gotten to know. He was one of the probably the earliest disco promotion people, and every night, about maybe five nights out of the week or even six nights out of the week, Billy would take me around to the clubs. And I would get to see firsthand in his car, we would go to literally, Matt, in a given night in this time period back then, while this energy is just beginning to really form, become a real force, if you will. And we would go around to the clubs. I'm watching and observing the dance floor, meeting the DJs, seeing that there's an opportunity here for how this music is now seemingly going to explode. And I'm going, hmm, there's something going on here with these clubs. And this is an opportunity where I can see that records are breaking in the clubs before they even get on the radio. That's incredible. The dance floor does not lie, Matt. Caviano studied Smith's technique for breaking albums with only club promotion. Soon, he was ready to put those lessons to work for himself. The manager of Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah band approached Caviano about promoting the group. There was something very special about the Savannah Band because their music was so sophisticated and it had a real different twist to it. I took this group out to Fire Island and they performed live in an area called the Pines. And when they performed, the word spread like wildfire. This thing became a number one dance record, 
a crossover hit, etc. They had two or three other hits. Needless to say, the album went gold. Right from the jump, Caviano's promotion strategy was working, and after his success with the Savannah Band, he developed a system that he could reuse with record after record. Here's the real part of it. I formulized the promotion and created a network on paper with these clubs. In other words, I make a list of all the DJs in each major market, and the billboard is now formulating reporting DJs around the country. I have that list. So I had the the formula of the tools of reaching out to probably, I would say, well over 400 VIP DJs in every major market in this country. Caviano's strategy centered around promoting to DJs who reported the records they played to Billboard magazine for their disco chart. This meant interacting with the DJs face-to-face in their clubs and listening to what they have to say. I was a student of the scene, if you will. That's what gave me the credibility. When I go into a booth, there's a whole way of communicating with a DJ. Even when you bring a test person, I have enough credibility to tell him how to segue it and what to do, when not to talk to the DJ, etc. Because there's an art and a communication and a sensibility by which you translate that energy to the DJ. And he just, it's something you feel. Caviano's system consisted of a series of tests for each song. First, he would bring a test pressing to only a few of the more progressive club DJs. If the dancers reacted positively in their clubs, he would bring the song around to more clubs in New York and Fire Island. If those clubs also reacted positively, he'd bump the song up to the next level of promotion. When disco was beginning to take off, record labels were mailing individual DJs promotional albums one at a time. Reps soon found this process to be inefficient and expensive, so all parties got together and devised a new revolutionary system of distributing promotional records called the record pool. The record pool system was a bulk way. I talked about promoting records to the so-called, if you will, VIP DJs around the country, the so-called billboard reporters, and either other important DJs that were maybe not necessarily billboard reporters. But then once I set the trend with this record, now I want to get it out en masse to all the other, let's say, 2,000, 4,000 DJs around the country, and you do it through record pool distribution. In every city had a record pool. We bulk out them to these, they pay a membership to get records from the record companies. They got their little bin at the record pool and the DJs would get records from the record companies. They would fill out little feedback sheets about it. Of course, at that point, once I sent it to the record pool, I knew what the record was gonna do because I've already pre-promoted it. After getting a bit of a name for himself as a disco promoter, a mutual business associate introduced Caviano to the owner of an independent record label called TK Records. That man was Henry Stone. Now, TK was already going with Casey and the Sunshine Band and whatever, so Henry has a history of working in in music. He's one of the people that found James Brown and Ray Charles. So uh, he already had major hits with Casey and Rock Your Baby George McRae that sold 80 million singles, number one in 50 countries. 
that was written by Casey, and they cut it in the middle of the night. Casey was working in the mailroom. That's part of the TK story. Thus, the TK Miami sound. So I jumped on board just after that. Now, at this point, I'm poised with my whole foundation of the system that I've created. And then with Henry, I just had hit after hit after hit. It was ridiculous. It was just, I mean, how could an independent label like this, you know, I mean, come on now. Along with labels like Casablanca, Sal Sol, and Prelude, Henry Stone's TK Records was one of a small handful of independent labels that dominated the disco market. Besides having hits with Casey and the Sunshine Band and George McRae, TK had a hit with Ralph McDonald's Calypso Breakdown, and acts like T-Connection, Celie B and the Buzzy Bunch, Peter Brown, Foxy, Anita Ward, Joe Thomas, and Voyage, just to name a few. And Caviano had his fingerprints on many of those hits. Henry Stone and TK, he gave me a lot of latitude. I was named Promotion Man of the Year four years in a row by Billboard magazine. We had Billboard disco conventions because Henry never asked me to push a record that I didn't believe in. You realize how important that is because to a promotion man, everything is credibility. Sometimes if you work for a major label, you're forced to promote something that you may know that it might be a stiff. I was in the clubs. I knew the music. I knew the DJs. I was on the dance floor. I was assimilating the whole thing, you know, in a sense of really feeling the scene per se. And I think that's where the, the credibility came from. And I was batting a thousand. By the start of 1977, it wasn't just TK's business that was booming. Everyone who touched disco was making money. DJs were commanding record high fees. Disco radio shows were commanding high ratings. Disco albums were selling like crazy. And of course, the dance floors were packed. Every Chinese restaurant in the Northeast at 10 o'clock on a Friday night turned into a disco. There were just discos popping up everywhere. Bars were turning into discos. DJs were getting jobs. It was just a tremendous amount of money. Fashion was affected by it. We had disco cruises all of a sudden. It was just massive amount of money on all areas and coming. That's, that's even before Radio. Saturday night? That was before Saturday Night Fever. Wow. It was just coming. Yeah, we, and then when Saturday Night Fever hit, bam. In 1976, New York Magazine published an article titled Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. To the reader, the article appeared to take a sincere look at Brooklyn's disco scene, but that look may not have been as sincere as it seemed. Here's Jim DeRogatis again. You know, the great irony there being it's a New York Magazine article that was still uh, considered part of the heyday of new journalism, this culture of Brooklyn street guys who were getting together to dance. You know, and it, and it turns out that it was entirely fabricated and made up. Tribal rights of the new Saturday night, which New York Magazine promoted as factual reporting, was a complete work of fiction. But that didn't matter. The article captured the imagination of Hollywood producers who soon transformed it into a movie titled Saturday Night Fever. Theaters around the country began showing the movie in December of 1977, and it was a hit. But to anyone familiar with disco culture, the movie was off the mark. What goes on this film? Well, number one, there's no DJing in this film. There's only one fleeting scene where you can even see there's a DJ. So that's one thing. It doesn't get DJ culture. I just never was interested in Saturday Night Fever because I knew guys like John Travolta and I tried to stay away from them because they were going to beat me up for my lunch money. There were definitely crews, club goers that were like Tony Manero's crew. That wasn't my crew. You know, we weren't as ignorant and racist as those guys were, homophobic. But there was a lot of it was spot on, especially for the 
Italian-American end of it. No Italians, no disco. I got news for you people. If you haven't seen the movie yet, there's a spoiler coming up in the next clip. At the end of that film, Tony Monero, played by John Travolta, effectively rejects discotheque culture in Brooklyn and moves to Manhattan, you know, and we can sort of say this is unbelievably ironic, moves to Manhattan to grow up and get away from dancing. Whereas what we know is, you know, the real dancing was happening more in in Manhattan, arguably, than, than Brooklyn, maybe. I think there was a huge uptick in people wearing really bizarrely colored 100% polyester leisure suits, you know. And like my high school dances were full of, of Saturday Night Fever soundtrack kind of music. You know, it took on a life of its own. And in some ways, that life became a little bit damaging for what happened in disco. There's no question of that to me. It really became what a cooler conversation at that point. You know, I went to a disco. There was a whole other group of regular people that wanted to go to the clubs, that were maybe intimidated to go to the clubs. And when Saturday Night Fever came out and encouraged them to go to the clubs, it was easy for them to blend in now because now by watching Saturday Night Fever, they could see, oh, that's how it is. So that's how I have to dress and that's how I have to act to be able to go to these clubs. So it was kind of like a a how-to of disco for regular people. What happened is it became this runaway success. So the film became the second best ever ticketed film in the history of cinema at that point. And it also, the soundtrack became the best ever selling soundtrack, or album, in fact, I should say, 33 million copies. And it was at this point that the sound started to become ubiquitous, and the sound that became ubiquitous happened to be quite white and quite shrill. Saturday Night Fever wasn't just a cultural phenomenon, it was also a financial phenomenon. You might say that it triggered a disco gold rush. But all around the country, entrepreneurs, many of them who've had no connection whatsoever to dance music previously, think that they can reproduce a Brooklyn-style discotheque, and they do. And thousands upon thousands of discotheques open. And it's also on the back of this rush that the major record labels start to open disco apartments having sorry departments having never really taken any interest in the first place in disco because mostly they were staffed by guys who were into rock music and not into for want of a better term again black disco after treating disco like the unwanted stepchild for so long the major record labels could not ignore the record-breaking success of the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Independent labels, like TK, were making record amounts of money from disco, and the majors wanted a piece of the action. That's where disco started to change the record companies. They had to hire and open up disco departments to do the promotion so that they could get into making money with this music. And it was easy money because they didn't have to spend a lot of money to break the records because they were being broken in the clubs. They didn't have to go to radio. Radio was coming to us. RCA Records and MCA Records finally established their own disco departments. CBS Records appointed a head of disco promotion to each of their subsidiary labels. Atlantic Records, the first major to enter the disco market, built out their disco department even further. Polydor Records purchased a 50% stake in the label Donna Summer was signed to, Casablanca Records. Even Warner Brothers Records, one of the last holdouts, finally caved. I'm working for Henry Stone. We have mega hits. I'm promotion man of the year four years in a row, right? Blah, blah, blah. We're just turning out hits. I'm a head swirling from the hits. I just can't, you know, I just feel like we're on top of the world. Little old funky label in Miami, right? And we're killing them, Matt. We're killing them. So Mo is seeing, albeit a little late in the scene, 
Mo Austin, the president of Warner, decided it was time to build a disco department, and he wanted an experienced disco man at the helm. But before Austin hired one, he wanted to give the job candidate a test. Henry Stone, the president of Tea Cake, gets a call from Mo, Uncle Mo. <laughs> so Mo knew Henry. They're both old record men anyway, right? Henry! Mo Austin says, I need a favor, Henry. Oh, what's that? Listen, would you mind if I could borrow, I'm using air quotes here, Ray for his services, just as a kind of a one-time thing, or if you will, for a new artist that I signed out of France, a model who is a disco artist that needs a real good street club promotion effort. Henry says, yeah, well, what do you need? Oh, would you mind if he just takes on the project as a consultant to Warner Brothers, blah, blah, blah? Ah, yeah, go ahead. I'll let Ray know it's okay. So I get a contact call from one of the reps of Warner Brothers, who's the assistant, special assistant to Mo, said, listen, would you mind that we have an artist named Madeline Kane? She had a record called Rough Diamond. She was a model, beautiful, Euro disco sound. Uh, would you mind taking I listen to the music? I say, I like it. Well, I take on the project. Where does it go on the charts? Number one. And so I finally get a call from one of the reps of Warner Brothers and said, listen, Mo would like to meet you. Well, I knew what it was that all about. Can you come to L.A.? Yeah. Of course, they send me there. They pay for it. Limo at the airport, take me to Warner Brothers, blah, blah, blah. We talk about some preliminaries about what I do and how I do it. What we've just talked about in this interview, the formula, the promotion, the credibility, the music, the culture the whole nine. He said, wow, that's interesting. He said, how would you like to come work for us? I said, well, that's interesting. He said, well, give us some thought and let me know what you think. So at that particular point, I said, you know what? I need a lawyer. <laughs> I hired a lawyer. Caviano's lawyer advised him to make a bold request Instead of simply taking a high-level position at Warner, the lawyer suggested Caviano ask for his own label imprint. Caviano liked the idea, and while riding in one of Warner's private jets, he ran the idea by Austin, who gave it his blessing. RFC Records was born. They paid me a salary to work there, a royalty for my records, and a, and a salary to be the president of RFC, and a budget to sign music, and to hire a 13-person staff. The overall budget for a three-year commitment was $6 million. And I just want to note here that the whistle noise you just heard is not a sound effect. Caviano received a text message right at the moment he mentioned $6 million, and his phone made that whistle noise. But anyway, one of the people Caviano hired to be on his 13-person staff was the DJ from Boston that we've heard a lot from this episode, Joey Carvello. I went in and I was supposed to just do the Northeast and he ended up giving me the entire East Coast from New Orleans to uh, Boston. 
with the exception of New York, ran around the clubs getting records played in the clubs, and we had numerous number ones and you know Change and Gino Socio, just those two alone, two iconic, huge, massive disco acts from 1979. We dominated. And I'll tell you about some of the artists that we've had m- numerous number one records with while at my tenure at Warner Brothers. One of the biggest ones was Rod Stewart that sold $3 million, where I put Gene Burgess to do a remix of Do You Think I'm Sexy? So they got their money back just on that record. But moving right along, right? Following Warner's announcement of the creation of RFC Records, at Billboard Magazine's 1979 disco form, Caviano took the podium and proudly proclaimed to a room filled with fellow disco promoters, record executives, and DJs, We have finally made the big time. Billboard reported that for the first time in disco's existence, the genre was no longer the unwanted stepchild of the music industry. For a music that was born out of the union of so many marginalized cultures, it was remarkable that disco was now the best-selling genre in the world. And for a man who dropped out of high school a little more than a decade before, and who wasn't even 30 years old, Rick Caviano was on top of that world. Disco sucks! Disco sucks! Disco sucks! But what he and others in the industry couldn't foresee was a backlash brewing which would coalesce into let's say, an explosive movement. We'll discuss the Disco Sucks movement and the other factors that contributed to Disco's decline in the second part of our two-part Disco series. They didn't like the music. I was flashy. I was, I, listen, I represent the Disco. I dressed well. I had a great haircut. I always smelled good. I had manicures. I had girls. I had drugs. I had everything that they ever wanted to have. I had it all. You know what I mean? I had it all. And they just couldn't get into that lifestyle to get that. They were jealous at the end of the day. You guys know you were. This episode was produced by me, Matthew Billy. Tim Townsend was the editor. Big thanks to Joey Carvello, Ray Caviano, Tim Lawrence, and Jim DeRogatis for being our guests. If you would like to witness Carvello's DJ skills in action, he spins each Monday at Mobile Monday, hosted by New York City's Bowery Electric. If you want a deeper dive into dance music's past, check out Tim Lawrence's book, Love Saves the Day, a history of American dance music culture from 1970 to 1979. And if you want another great music podcast to listen to, check out the show Jim DeRogatis hosts, Sound Opinions. Ray Caviano's current record label is RFC Fresh Records. Follow him on Facebook for announcements about upcoming record releases. Special thanks to Jerry Rubino, Rupert Allman, Brendan Banizak, and Evan Chung. Between the Liner Notes is distributed by the Goat Rodeo Network. For more information about the show, please visit BetweenTheLinerNotes.com. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our show on iTunes or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. We'll bring you another forgotten story about music on the next Between the Liner Notes. <laughs>